and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So first of all, I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And today's guest is going to talk all about these skills and how he is leveraging them to help the next generation of leaders and performers in our world. Now, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I think you'll enjoy the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase and can listen to the audiobook at Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the response that it's gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Additionally, I run a one-on-one coaching program for executives. It's designed to help executives grow, learn, and figure out how they can lead and perform better. If you're interested in the accelerator program that we run, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, it's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our past conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us as we continue to expand our reach at the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Steve Messler is the co-founder and CEO of Classroom Champions. They're a nonprofit that brings together children and the world's best athletes to mentor and teach kids the skills they need to succeed in and out of the classroom. It really is remarkable what Steve has created. But Steve's journey started well beyond starting the nonprofit. 
After winning an Olympic gold medal in the four-man bobsled at the 2010 Vancouver Olympic Games, Steve was inspired to bring the values, the lessons, and the experiences he and his fellow Olympic and Paralympic athletes had gained through sport into the classroom. So since creating Classroom Champions in 2009, over 200 athletes have taught more than 1 million students. And Steve actually mentions in this conversation, they've reached over 5 million students talking to them about goal setting, perseverance, and teamwork to support their mental health, wellness, and academic achievement. Steve has written for or been featured in the Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, Inc., NBC's Today Show, and dozens of other news, sports, and education outlets. Steve is also going to mention in this conversation that he's a member of the board of directors of the U.S. OPC, which stands for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and he also was a finalist for the International Champion for Peace Award and was named one of Sports Illustrated's Athletes Who Care. He's a sought-after speaker and presenter on education at conferences around the world, including in Dubai, Sochi, Tel Aviv, Guatemala, and across the U.S. and Canada, and has collaborated with the likes of TED, Big Think, and others to increase awareness of the importance of social and emotional learning in young students. Now, our conversation goes into the brightest of bright stars and lights that have been shined on him throughout his career, and also some some of the darkness. He's going to talk about depression. He's going to talk about traumatic brain injuries and concussions and how they've impacted him and impacted some of the people he's been closest to in the sport of bobsledding. So this conversation runs wide and it it has lots of range both of us have a relationship with dave epstein who we talk about in this conversation and i think steve is really someone who embraces the idea of being a generalist while still learning how to specialize in something and becoming one of the best in the world at what he did in a bobsled his story is going to fascinate you but i think his wisdom and his desire to grow and learn and challenge some of his assumptions is going to come across in this conversation so without further ado I'm so excited to present to you, Steve Messler. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, we were just chatting here and, and you mentioned that today is an important day for your family. So talk about what it's like to have your daughter become an American citizen. You live in Calgary, but you're from Buffalo. Just talk about today. And I'm curious about the dual citizenship life that you live. Why Calgary? Um, you know, we could talk about Buffalo. People from Buffalo tend to have a lot of pride. Um, but talk about what it's going to be like having your daughter become a quote unquote American today, even though it's like she was already that, but I guess officially. Yeah, no. Well, yes. Thank you for thank you for letting me start off with talking about my daughter. There's nothing better than getting to start off talking about your kids. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. This is awesome. I'm really stoked to be here. Yeah, we I live in Cal, live in Calgary. I moved up here back in 2003 to train for bobsled. Uh, my coach was up here and girl I was dating at the time was up here and um, and I stayed my you know, my future wife wound up, wound up being from here and um, so yeah, today my daughter was born about four years ago, but we just didn't go through the process. You can go through this process at any point before they turn 18. Um, but today she and I are heading, and my wife is are heading to the U.S. consulate and getting her all of her uh, American citizenship work completed. And I didn't really think I would mind or notice because she's technically an American citizen. She was born to me, so she's been technically American citizen since she's either technically or theoretically, whichever way it would work. But today we actually make it official. And I didn't think it would be a big deal to me or feel good, but it actually, when I woke up this morning, that's 
kind of neat. Like I've been, you know, I live in live in a foreign country, uh, even though I'm like you said from Buffalo, where yes, Buffalo pride is is oozes out of every single soul. There's probably not one person who knows me for more than five or ten minutes that doesn't know I'm from Buffalo, and I'm excited. As soon as we're as soon as we leave this podcast, we're heading down to the consulate. And you mentioned Calgary being a hot spot. Uh, do a lot of Americans that are winter sport athletes train up north? That's something I, I wasn't aware of until you just said it. Yeah, there's, yes, there's a lot of Americans that have come up here trained for back in my day, uh, competing in the 2000s, half the bobsled team lived up here. A guy named Stu McMillan, who was our coach, our, our national team push coach for years and and you know, is went on and coached Andre de Grasse in the 2016 Olympics to his Rio medals and in the sprints. So he's a sprinter sprint coach where bobsled fits in there, but you've got a big contingent of winter athletes here where I live as the crow flies about a mile or two from my house is the Olympic Canadian Olympic park where the 1988 Olympics or for Americans, cool runnings was filmed there. So there you go. Um, if we didn't get a cool runnings. If there was going to be nothing else to come out of this. I watched cool runnings. We're still in a pandemic recording this i watched it with my son and my daughter and it's their favorite movie so we watch cool runnings over and over and they can Love even it. take the final scene which i wasn't sure how they were going to deal with that mm -hmm. final scene which i choke up every time i watch it i can't imagine yep. what you do but i'm glad we got we got cool runnings out of the way <laughs> right, right, now right. we can have our conversation right when i took we after we won our gold medal i'll fast forward if we're going to talk we're going to talk through story i'll fast forward really quick uh when kurt tomasevich and i uh, who's a guy on my four-man bobsled team that we won our gold medal with. We had the honor of being invited to Luke Air Force Base with a couple of skiers, actually Shannon Barkey uh, and Brian Wilson were two mogul skiers. And we had the honor of being invited to Luke Air Force Base and speaking to the troops and hanging out with them and then taking F-16 rides. And we went to dinner with the pilots the night before. And <laughs> we're sitting there talking and the pilot, one of the pilots uh, turns and goes, talks about cool runnings and I was like, look, okay, if you're gonna go cool runnings, I have to go Top Gun. And right away he goes, oh man, I'm a pilot because of Top Gun, which throws away my whole alibi of wanting to pick on somebody for Top Gun or, or them picking on me for cool runnings. So that's my, it's my favorite, like where cool runnings happened to be injected into my life was because the Air Force pilot who was about to take me on a Mach 1 F-16 trip the next day brought it up. And what was it like being in an F-16? I just saw the Blue Angels perform uh, about a month ago, and we were all having the conversation about, you know, you get in one of those planes. Like, I, I don't know. I don't like roller coasters, man. Like, I, you put me <laughs> in one of those planes, or a bobsled for that matter, other than the one at Vail, Colorado, which is not, I think, the same thing as what you all experienced. Slightly different. Yeah, slightly, slightly different. different. Yeah. Um, but for you, what was that like flying on an F-16? Was it? Was it exhilarating? Was it an adrenaline rush? What was that experience like? Unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable goes without saying. Like, that should just be, you check the box of unbelievable, and then you move into the story. Um, it was actually, re the whole process is really neat because you are, you are, they actually meet with you beforehand, and they go through their flight protocols, and they did two, two jets at a time. So it was myself and Brian, um, one of the skiers that were going up, kind of quote-unquote, together with different pilots. And you go and you meet in the flight room and they talk to you about where you're going to go. And we were, our mission was going to be about an hour and 40 minutes long. And we were heading up over a big crater. We were going to head over um, Lake Powell, which is that big kind of lake river. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Um, 
and then we were going to head over the Grand Canyon, and then we were going to head out to Air Force Space in Arizona, where you can actually like break the sound barrier and do all these things that you don't do over residential neighborhoods because <laughs> the boom would break everything in half. And then all of a sudden they turn and they go, hey, guys, like we're just going to speak in our code for right now to just make sure we're both on the same page. And they start speaking in it, it is English, clearly English, but I couldn't we didn't know what they were just saying, um, which was really neat to talk because there's precision, right? Like normal words were not precise enough for the work they had to do. And then when we were up in the air um, and actually I was talking to one of my staff at Classroom Champions about this the other day, who's having trying to figure out some communications issues among some of her teammates. And and um, we were we were talking about the need for over communicating sometimes, especially when things are stressful or when you're in new new situations of which one of her employees was in kind of a relatively new situation. And she's young. And I actually used the F-16 example, which was <clears throat> I was feeling queasy and sick <laughs> on there. And it wasn't because of the big, you know, turns and all that. It's actually because an F-16 is. You know how if you're flying in a United airline, you know, Delta Airlines, you put a glass of water down, it's flat. The, the glass will, you know, the water will stay glassy. Well, in an F-16, if you were to put a glass of water down, it would be constantly rippling because the plane is so, so delicate that it's just on living on the edge the whole time. So it's constantly vibrating. And for those who are not watching us, as I'm saying to Brian, I'm kind of shaking my hand back and forth. So I was getting a little bit sick. And the pilot says, hey, you want to fly? And of course, my first instinct was, hell yes, I want to fly the F-16. Like if I would have known that me being sick would have gotten me to fly the F-16, I would have said I was sick 20 minutes ago. So as he says that, he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he says, I'm going to say, you got the stick. And then you're going to say, I got the stick. And then I'm going to repeat back to you, you got the stick. So it was this over communicating. You got the stick. I got the stick. You got the stick. And then I was in charge and I had said to her, this is the kind of over communication that our pilots are using and the precision our pilots are using in communicating. I just thought it was such a cool thing. So that's my um, ride in F-16, but we, you know, we flew down below the deck at Lake Powell, which was super cool. And then went and, you know, flew over the airspace zone. By then I was pretty like I had thrown up a couple times in the bags <laughs> they give you and, and I was pretty defeated. And we had about 20 minutes left and he's like, hey, do you want to not do anything? You know, we're going to do like loop-de-loops and twirls and twists and pretzels. And I said, no, man, just do it all. <laughs> like, there's never going to do this again. So pretty, it was incredible. And the and I was, I'm, you know, growing up in Buffalo, we don't have, mil we didn't have a military base around there that I was exposed to much. And I went to Gainesville, Florida for school, not, not another military base there. So it was really my first exposure to the American military. And I walked away proud, but also feeling really good that these people, these men and women know what they're doing. And they take this stuff as serious as I want the people who are flying our F-16s and our weapons to take it. And it was really just an incredible day. There's a couple of themes that you talked about. One, you talked about the over-communication. And I do think the military really is keen on communication and, and synchronization and that leads to teamwork and how are we working as a team? And there is an inclusion involved with him trying to help you be involved with this process of, of flying. And, um, and then even for you to then have the fearlessness to say, all right, let's just do it. Like I'm going to do it. <laughs> look at my life. And I'm, I'm not naturally wired that way. Like I, 
I was 14 years old and my family actually did a trip to Africa and we had the opportunity to go skydiving. Um, and my mom talk about someone who likes adventure. My mom was skydiving. My dad, there was one spot left and my dad said, Brian, why don't you take it? Um, so it gives you an idea of maybe where I get some of my stuff from. Um, but I remember doing that when I was 14 and how grateful I was for my parents to challenge us and, and let us go toward adventure. And then this past weekend I was away and I was in Cape Cod and we decided to fly back through um, Nantucket. So we flew from Cape Cod to Nantucket. I've never been to Nantucket before, by the way, or Cape Cod for that matter. And the flight from Cape Cod to Nantucket is 15 minutes. And so we were in one of those prop planes with two other people. There were four of us on this plane, Cape Air, and we fly over the water and it's just gorgeous. And then we land and then we have a direct flight to Washington, D.C. And the direct flight to Washington, D.C. is a normal flight, which is why we were flying to Nantucket. And I look out the window and I'm just looking at everything in my city. I'm from Washington, D.C. So we flew over NIH and Walter Reed mm-hmm. and all these places that I live next to, but I could see it from the aerial view. Yeah. And then we came in over the river in D.C. and looking at the Washington Monument. There's something about being above that transforms how we see the world and humanity. And I'll tell you, when I was in that prop plane going to Nantucket, I was thinking, because it was one pilot, I was thinking, oh, crap, what if this dude has a heart attack? Who's going to be the one <laughs> grabbing the, the the wheel? And I can tell you, my friend that was on the plane with me, I don't think he was going to steer it. The, the guy behind me was pregnant with his wife. She was behind me. They were great people. We became friends. But I was like, I'm going to have to be the one to steer it. And nobody wants me steering this plane. Nobody. Um, but it went through my mind. It went through my mind. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I, very similar thoughts. And I thought, man, I mean, I, I feel like I could land this. Like, I've seen these movies before where they just, like, talk somebody in. Come on. How hard could it be? And then I realized, no, it's going to be really hard. There's 2,000 buttons in this thing. Not yeah, ideal. No, I, Not ideal. I, yeah, it's it's a neat. I mean, I mean, people who can fly planes and and do those things, it's a really neat skill that they've developed. Absolutely. So you talk about Top Gun, and we talk about cool runnings, and this business that you've built, and I love to call it a business because I know what goes into a nonprofit, and I've coached nonprofit leaders, and I've been involved with nonprofits, and I know that it is a business, but it is really around this idea of championship and mentoring and uh, learning skills and developing youth. So I'm curious for you, we, we think about Top Gun and we think of Cool Runnings, and for a lot of us, those are our heroes growing up. Um, who was a champion or a hero that you looked up to as a kid and why? There was a, there, a handful of people um, for me, and, and yeah, to your point, that's one of the reasons why my sister and I started Classroom Champions is we recognized that we had really incredible people in our lives who who taught us and urged us and mentored us and coached us between school and sport to go off and do really big things. My sister has her doctorate uh, in education and social policy and and works at one of the preeminent think tanks in the country when it comes to like researching education and, and impact. And we recognize that a lot of kids and people in this world don't have that there. So technology is the way that Class of Champions is built on technology. So technology is a way that we use uh, to help schools integrate those kinds of people into their day-to-day and into their social emotional learning framework and curriculum um so when i look back at the people that i looked up to you know one of the guys that jumps out at me is a guy named dan o'brien so dan was the 1996 olympic champion in decathlon of which we got to go we happened to be in atlanta 
at the Olympics at the track stadium watching because we were big track nuts growing up. And I was just off to the University of Florida, you know, getting a scholarship to go and do decathlon. So to sit there and watch Dan, but go back four years, the reason I became a decathlete, which is the, which is the reason the thing I got my scholarship for, which is the reason that I got exposed to bobsled eventually and, and on and on and on and on. That you know, first domino that fell was watching the Dan and Dave commercials that Reebok ran, the world's greatest athlete commercials back in 1992. I mean, they um, are epic. It's probably those are. It's probably the only reason I know. As soon as you said Dan O'Brien, I said Dan and Dave. Like that yep. is right away. The red, the the little red box and the blue box, and uh, that's that was it, right? That's how everybody of our generation got to know track and field in a lot of ways, let alone what in the world decathlon was. But Dan was a guy who missed the Olympic team in 1992 when that campaign was the big thing. He actually no hided in pole vault. So he didn't make the Olympic squad. And they, you know, they came back from it and you've got like Dan sitting in like a like a lounge chair or like drinking a Mai Tai, like cheering for Dave to to compete. So they they had to get creative in their campaign. But ultimately for Dan, it was a global flop for him. And and I can't imagine I, I can't imagine because I've talked to him about this since. But then he went on, and the reason why he was somebody I looked up to was A, he had struggles when he was young. He had he he dealt with alcohol problems. Uh, he dealt with other things that he had to get through and had to beat those demons. Thought that was a really neat thing to see somebody come back from that. But then he also, three months after not making the Olympic team, he went and broke the world record in Talence, France, in decathlon. Even though, you know, the Olympic gold medal had been won by somebody else. A month, you know, a month after the Olympics and three months after he didn't make the team, he's out breaking the world record, which, you know, I was in those formative years. I was 13, 14 years old, just realizing that I had potential as an athlete. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, here's the guy that doing the event that I wanted to do, going out and, and having a, the biggest global flop you could have and then winning a world record. And then I got to be in the stadium with him four years later. So, you know, Dan O'Brien was definitely that guy for me. And your parents were also teachers. You mentioned your sister is a teacher. Yep. You co-founded this organization with your sister, and we'll talk a lot about the organization. But talk to us about your your parents and the impact and influence they had on you and your sister. Yeah, we. Um, no, thanks for asking about that. They, my parents were both teachers. They were both special ed teachers, um, which is an interesting thing as I look back at. Um, my mom was super mom. <clears throat> she, you know, she ran the parent teacher association. She was the she was she was all of those things and she was the one that taught my sister and i really early on that we had the right to know we had the right to do things and she empowered us and i still remember to this day she was the one who said you know look if you're talking to somebody and they can't help you you ask them to talk to somebody who can help you because there's always somebody who can and i think that mentality really pushed through in us today so much so that like, you know, if I'm trying to raise money for classroom champions, somebody can make these decisions. I want to make sure I'm talking to the decision maker. Um, and those things stick with me today. And my dad, who, you know, would leave at 530 in the morning to go. He, he worked in uh, one of the suburbs, uh, BOCES, which is a big you know, special support system for the New York City, New York State public school, public school system. And, you know, he'd leave at 530 in the morning and then he would coach track and field in the afternoon for, for his, you know, his school out there. But I, you know, I saw in my dad, like a work ethic that I see in myself that I see in my daughter. Um, actually, I'm writing about it. And I've written about it in my newsletter, my blog, that just those instincts to work hard and to push and how great those instincts are. And also how sometimes those instincts can backfire on you. 
as well. So, you know, growing up in a place like Buffalo, blue, blue collar is going to be, it's been consistently the third poorest city in the country. Um, and growing up in Buffalo in the 80s and 90s, you're talking about a, a city that had been in recession depression for 40, 50 years at that point. It's finally starting to come out of that now. And those things stick with you. Like they, that that stuff sticks with you. And you talk about Buffalo pride, right? Um, you know, I grew up in the, I was also my formative years, not just watching Dan O'Brien, but also watching the Buffalo Bills. And what happened to the Buffalo Bills in early mid nineties? Lose, 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 lose. I think I got all four. You of got, them. I think you got all four of them right <laughs> in a row there. Uh, yet I st still remember watching Scott Norwood and the first Buffalo Bills team that came back from losing to the Giants because Scott Norwood missed the field goal wide right. Big everybody, everybody in Buffalo knows wide right. But what I remember, and again, those formative years, why it's so important, is I watched Scott Norwood come back and they had a huge celebration for the Buffalo Bills in like the city square, basically, in front of City Hall. And the whole crowd, tens of thousands of people started chanting, Scott, Scott, Scott. And here's little Scott Norwood amongst all the guys, like this like really precocious dude who just lost the city, the Super Bowl, like single-footedly lost the city, the Super Bowl, comes up and, and speaks. And I remember, you're 13 years old. What do you learn? You can fail. You can fail in your community and your people will still love you. Really, really simple lesson. And I, I look back at my Buffalo experience and, and that's, that's why I am the person I am today because of all these experiences I've had. It's, it's beautiful. I want to go to your parents just mm -hmm. a little bit longer. So they're both in special ed. If anyone knows anybody that works in special ed, they know the patience and the determination and the focus that it takes to do that work. I mean, just incredible work. Yeah. It's not lost on me that you were very intentional in saying what your company is. And you said, we're a technology company. We leverage technology. And I even watched a talk from you from 2011 where you're talking about technology and video technology. And here we are 10 years later and we're doing this recording using video technology. Um, and it's come a long way. And anyone who's been in using video technology over the last decade knows that where we are today is not where we were 10 years ago. But I'm curious for you, um, as you think about your parents' background in education and helping people, how are you thinking about it differently than, than how they thought about it in the work that they did? So I don't think anybody's ever asked that question before. Um, you know, their, their work was very hands-on and tactile. Like they were working with pretty severely uh, challenged populations, um, helping do job support, helping them learn how to take the bus, um, mainly high school populations as well. Uh, and I do you talk about patience and, you know, I mean, I think if you were to ask me as a kid or a teenager, would I consider my dad a person with a lot of patience? I would likely say absolutely not. Um, but what I realized <laughs> is, and I have the same thing too, which, you know, I don't come built with a lot of empathy. Um, it's something that I work on. It's something that I have to recognize on a regular basis. And my, t my empathy tank only has so much in it. And when I look at my dad who would go to work, get there early to get all of his paperwork and things done in, in the morning and spend all day long with this, you know, challenging population that you're hands-on and tactile with, you'd come home, like your empathy's gone. He was fine. I mean, he wasn't like an angry dad or anything like that, but it was not the patient. It was not, again, patience would not have been the, the thing. And I love you, dad. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. They're coming up for the first time in a year and a half. 
pretty sure they're coming up to see their granddaughter, which I respect over me. Um, but Get used to it. Get yeah, to it. I'm, right. a, I'm, a, I'm a year and a half older. I have a five and a half year old boy and a four, four and a half year old girl. So yep. we can talk about four year old girls on another podcast or another line <laughs> on what the heck you do. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, they're, they're definitely not coming to see you. No, no. And, and I respect that. Um, I'm the one that has to get them in the country, though. So, you know. There, there um, <clears throat> so I... But to your point, to your question, which is how do I think we look at education differently now than my parents did, which is the, the world is completely different. I think the generation that we're talking about now creates relationships in a way with technology of which our generation, Gen X or you know, millennials or Gen X would, you know, contended look down on sometimes. You know, it, it's the classic and probably in the talk you saw, it was the analogy I may have used was, you know, is... You know, asking the audience, how many people out there have a teenager who, when you walk into the living room and you see your teenager on the couch texting with their best friend, which is fine, except for their best friend is on the other side of the couch. And ultimately, we get angry at that or we want them to connect in a different way. But that's not up to us anymore. This is the that is the old, you know, uh, the old Scrooge McDuck kind of way of like looking at the younger generation now it is that's the way they connect so i think today we're able to harness that ability for kids to connect harness the ability for kids to you know feel like they know youtube stars and at the very least what at classroom champions we can do is put in these athletes who are currently competing not the not the gray-haired old has-beens like myself who are telling about my story but rather we want to show kids that there's two and a half weeks of glory on television called the olympics or paralympics and there's a process to get there that process is ugly and it's sticky and it's great and it's terrible and it's all of these things. And because of technology, we can share that. Uh, in my parents' generation in days of teaching, the only way the outside world could interact with kids was you'd come and visit. You'd come and give a talk or you'd come and do a, a, serve, a day of service. Well, today you can, you can do that via your desk. So you could do it every day or every week or every month. And that's the way that we're looking at education differently is how do you open up kids to the rest of the world? And now again, my parents, they would take kids to teach them how to do a job. Today's world, you don't have to, you can have the world come to kids. And I'm not discounting how important it is to get kids out there understanding and again, having a tactile experience with the world. I'm just saying today you can actually do that in a way that wasn't available. But boy, oh boy, when you're talking about the way that the job market is changing, we used to be preparing kids for a certain kind of job market that today, that job market is markedly changed. And their ability to need to socially interact with people is exploding. Their need to be able to get along with people is, is exploding. And that's what our schools have to be preparing kids for now. Because the things that you and I learned in school, our phones tell us in five seconds. And we'll stay on this for a minute. So you go to Florida, you're having success as a track and field athlete, um, but injuries really, it sounds like, took a toll on you. When you decide to graduate and then pursue bobsledding, and is your sister older or younger than you? Uh, three years younger. So I don't know if she had her mind up and like getting all these degrees and education, et cetera. But did your parents look at you? You just, you know, graduated from a great school like Florida. Um, and now you're like, yeah, I want to go pursue bobsledding. Like, what was their reaction to that? <laughs> I mean, it was it was about the tone of which you said you want to go pursue bobsledding. It well, was about that you're same Jewish, tone. I'm, correct? My, Jewish. I'm Jewish and my, my Jewish mother 
gave so me. We should the, frame this. We a should frame bit. this <laughs> exactly. I mean, the tone of which you just said, Bob said we should rewind the tape on that, was precisely the way that it came out of my mom, uh, which was go get a job. And I was like, I'm just gonna do this thing, and I'm just gonna give it one last try. Because honestly, I I was national champion in high school, which in track and field in in the U.S. is one of the like biggest pinnacles that a 17 year old athlete can reach. It, it is the level of competition is in, insane in the U.S. And we see that just you know this past you know in June where we saw a 17 year old make the 200 meter Olympic team for the US. That is bonkers. And we're going to get to watch this guy go in, in, in Tokyo. And he actually got sent down to the University of Florida to, to Mouse, my old, my Callaway, my old track coach down there, um, and who's now the, the head coach of the Olympic team. And it is such a neat experience to watch. And that's the level of talent you're talking about. You get to have a 17 year old make the US team bonkers. Um, so, but from a perspective for me, I, I went from that to four years in a row of injuries in, in college. And which also came off of tearing my hamstring after I had signed my letter of intent in, in high school. So after four years of being injured, I sat on my couch two days out of Tommy John surgery and like had this like come to Jesus moment, which was I'm probably done running track and field now. This 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 should be that moment. And anybody out there who's done high school or or collegiate athletics or professional sport, you have a moment of which you have to say, okay, I'm done now. I am done being an athlete. I am done this daily grind. I'm going to move on to the rest of my life. And it's a scary moment. And I wasn't ready to be done with it. And I literally, quite literally said, I'm not ready to be done yet. I'm not ready to give up on this dream. I'm not ready to think that just because I had four years of injuries means that I'm not good enough. So I, back of my brain was this guy named Jerry Clayton who recruited me to Florida, who had since gone on to Auburn. He had a guy who ran track, who went from track to bobsled compared us as athletes. I always laughed it off. Coach, I'm a decathlete University of Florida in the 90s. Like, what does that have to do with me? Well, you sit on a couch, desperate times come call for desperate measures. And with my elbow in a sling and whatever pain medication they had through me that caused the, the you know, rooted insanity that thought bobsled would be a good idea sitting on the couch in Gainesville, Florida, I pecked away with my, with my bad left arm and found the you know the Olympic Committee's address on Yahoo because Google wasn't accessible. There's was no contact forms back then. And emailed the Olympic Committee and I'm said I'm this big, this strong, this fast. If I can do this, let me know. If I can't, let me know. Got an email from USA Bobsled the next day, and the rest is history. Mom's reaction? Get a job. Get a job. Dad's reaction? Cool. Sister's reaction? You know, she was partying at, at University of Pennsylvania at that point. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't tell you what her reaction was at that point. But awesome. they were, I mean, they loved it. They, they went along for the ride and they, they were in Lake Placid every, every fall. They brought Buffalo tailgating to Lake Placid and to the international bobsled scene. They absolutely loved the ride. I think when I retired in 2010, I got more angry emails and texts from people simply because I was robbing them of the tailgate in Lake Placid than anything else. So here's what I think is helpful for people listening to this. I was not the athlete or a 10th of an athlete that, that you were. Um, but I remember I had some mentors tell me as soon as I graduated from college, Hey, go do something fun. You don't have a family. You don't really have expenses. Um, I know obviously people sometimes have to pay down college tuition and, and debts, 
Um, but the advice I was getting from people that I really respected was, Hey, go explore, like go do something for you. Were you thinking, all right, I'm going to try this for a year and see if I can make it. Or is it like, like, what was, what was the thinking for you as you graduate from college and you're like, all right, I'm going to go, go give this a shot. My thought process was kind of the single minded, selfish focus that all athletes have to have, which is I'm going to go do this. And there was no, if it doesn't work, there just was no, there was no exit plan. There was no release valve. It was, I'm going to go do this. And then I'll just figure it out afterwards. Like I had my degree, like I was about to graduate from university of Florida. So I was fortunate that I had my degree. Um, I had been accepted to Auburn, uh, university, Auburn university for grad school. So I just deferred that. And then I eventually ghosted on it. Um, sorry, Auburn. Um, and, but I really didn't have a, I didn't have an escape plan at that point. I was just, I was throwing myself into it. As soon as I heard somebody tell me that I had potential to do it. And then I really looked and understood that I actually did. Then I was, then I was all in on it. What was it like the first time you got in that sled? Oh, <laughs> it was <laughs> terrifying. It was, it was terrifying. I mean, it, for, for those of you who, who haven't seen bobsled or if you have seen bobsled on, on television, it is 10 times more violent than you could possibly imagine. <clears throat> and you, you go there and it's Olympic year, by the way. And there was a few rookies like myself that were clearly good athletes. Clearly we had potential. And I was the only rookie on the Olympic team that year to make the Olympic team. Um, but there was a few of us. So of course, as you come in and you know, you're competing against men, I was used to competing against generally boys in, you know, in, in college or what, you know, relatively speaking boys relative to the ginormous, you know, Hulk of size men. I almost turned around in, in Chula Vista, my first Olympic team camp, uh, and just almost turned around. I showed up one day, saw these guys, saw guys like Pavel Jovanovic, who became a teammate of mine. Um, and you know, other guys. And I just literally almost turned around and realized this was not for me. Luckily I stayed and I, my numbers were, were solid, but going down the sled the first time, you run, run, run. And these guys had, I mentioned that because they messed with you. Like they, they, you know, get you really, really scared. And as I get into the sled, you push, push, push in a two man sled. And Mike Dion was driving front set, ready or back set, front set, ready. And then off you go push, push, push down the steep start ramp in park city, Utah, which is where the Olympics were going to be held. This was October 4th, 2001. I still remember the day you get in the sled. And then your head goes straight down. So you're just looking between your knees at that point. And you're looking at the brake handles that are on the floor of the sled. And the sled kind of creeps through the first few corners. Curve one is a left, curve in Park City, all tracks are different. Curve two is a right, curve three is a left. And then you hit curve four. And curve four is this big diving curve to the left. And it just drops a good 20 or 30 meters. And it's a really long corner. And it feels like a few things are happening. Like one, it feels like somebody has lit a stick of dynamite in the back of the sled and exploded it in the middle of the turn. Two, it feels like something's gone wrong. Like it feels like the sled is broken because you realize there's no way this is what it could be like. Like there's, how would you possibly control something that's moving this fast, this crazy, this shaky? So once you like process where the dynamite come from and what's wrong, like something's gone terribly wrong, we're gonna die you have lost count of what corners you're on because you're supposed to count the turns until the braking stretch comes. And before you know it, you're just getting tossed back and forth, tossed back and forth. And then another 40 seconds later, the driver is 
elbowing you in the top of your helmet and yelling at you to pull the brakes. And then you pull these things and you get to the top, you get to the end of the braking stretch and you realize that you've gone through five G's of, of force in multiple corners and your guts have been pulled down to the ground and your back has been pulled down and your head has been pulled down. And one of two things has happened. And I've seen hundreds of guys and, and girls come through and do this. Majority of them go either, they either go like, whoa, that was crazy and awesome and I want to go do that. Or, whoa, that was crazy and awesome and I guess I'm going to go do that. Or they get out of the sled, they take their helmet off and they walk straight to their car. They get in the car, they go straight to the hotel, they pack their bags and they leave. And I've seen that happen before and it is one of the funniest things you'll ever see. And the obvious question is, which of those three were you? I was the first. I was like, man, that was wicked. I want to, let's go do that again. And next thing you know, it becomes that whole insanity. And this is the the process, whether you want to use like Gladwell's 10,000 hours or whatever other metaphor you want to use for skill acquisition. By the time I'm at the Olympics 10 years later or nine years later, um, at the, you know, going down the track in Whistler, which is a faster track and a more difficult and challenging track, I can see the matrix at that point. I can feel the matrix. I understand every single move of the sled, skid of the sled, acceleration, deceleration, and you you go from this, the beginning of it, it's like you're in a blender and <laughs> getting tossed off a mountain. That's, somebody keeps the blender going, they keep, somehow they keep the power going and the plug going and you get thrown off the mountain to the, you know, fast forward years later and everything is just smooth and slow. So the obvious next question for me is just this relationship with fear because yeah. I mean, what you're describing to me, similar to getting in a, a jet, it is like, all right, what's your relationship like with fear? Mm -hmm. What was it for you um, as you were getting in this shell that is going as fast as it's going? How did you develop a relationship with fear and what did that look like? It was an, it's a negotiation for sure. Um, you definitely have to negotiate with your, with your own fear and understand uh, and weigh the risks and weigh the rewards and... Um, we, I mentioned mouse earlier, the, my old co track coach at Florida sprint coach, who's, um, fantastic coach. There was a sign outside of our locker room in Florida that said, if you're scared, say you're scared. If you're scared, say you're scared to this day, probably my favorite quote of all time. And it was a mouse quote that we turned into a big sign with a gators thing there. And, and what it means to me is it's completely okay to be scared. And I tell this to my daughter, it's completely okay to be scared. I think it's, frankly, it's bullshit for somebody to say, well, you can't be afraid. Well, well, you can't control whether you are afraid or not. You can only control what you do with that fear. So if, you, if you're scared, say you're scared, is recognizing the fear, acknowledging it, giving a little tip of the cap saying, hey, how you doing? And then moving on. And I think for me, that's, I was, again, I was lucky enough to have people around me earlier in my sports career that would teach me things. And I didn't quite absorb that if you're scared, say you're scared as I was a track athlete at Florida in college. But as I moved on in life and got, you know, got more mature, but also hit more, you know, more scary things. I mean, there's times where you crash in a bobsled and it's awful crashing in a bobsled. I've been held up at gunpoint before in Houston, Texas, and that is barely scarier. And I was pretty sure they were going to pull the trigger. That was barely scarier than crashing in a bobsled. 
and you crash in a bobsled numerous times and the ability to actually go to the top of the track and then push as hard as you possibly can again after you've crashed or after you've watched other people crash is something that uh, you, you definitely you have to practice it. And I think that's the other part of negotiating with fear, which is negotiating with fear and overcoming fear is a skill just like anything else. It is a skill like getting used to the bobsled moving. It's a skill just like speaking in public. It's a skill just like, you know, handwriting or anything else. So I think if you can, if, if you can, and you know, if, if our listeners out there, my experience tells me that if you just face fear over and over and over again, it just gets easier and easier to handle. doesn't mean you're not scared. just means you can handle it. You competed for about a decade in the bobsled. Did you love it? Um, I love the process of it. I love the journey of it. Um, you know, going down a hill and getting the snot beat out of you on a daily basis and, you know, surviving multiple concussions. Um, I've had to, I've had to bury, I'm 42 years old. I've had to bury, uh, I slid with six guys at the Olympic games. I've had to bury two of them because they've taken their own lives. Um, so I don't miss the, I didn't love getting multiple concussions all the time. I didn't love getting micro concussions every day. I didn't love that part of it. But what I did love was I love being around the guys. I love the process of getting better. I loved watching video at night or at the track to try to find, you know, the extra degree that you drop your knees to, to get better. I loved going to the wind tunnel and playing with, you know, the, the, you know, the changes in our helmet height and, and back angles and shoulder angles. And that's the part of it that I loved. The actual part of bobsledding and going down the hill, I didn't necessarily love. Um, but my goal from being a kid wasn't to go to the Olympics as a bobsledder. My goal was to win the Olympics. I probably should have been more specific with myself in destiny and, uh, you know, kept myself in a, in a summer sport. But I, was, I wasn't that specific. So I just said, I want to go and win the Olympics. And 20 years later, I did. Um, and it was in a sport that I never would have guessed when I set that original goal. Um, but, you know, but the actual sport itself, I think it's a great sport. I think it's a, it's a team sport, unlike anything else in the Olympic movement, because if you don't have the right sled, if you don't have the right runners, if you don't have the right mechanics, if you don't have the right push, if you don't have the right drive, all of these factors, you cannot do it yourself. Unlike track and field where yes, you need a coaching staff and all these things, but you don't need them. You can, your coach can, you know, bail on you or you can bail on your coach a week before Olympic trials and still go and make the team. If your mechanic doesn't show up the day of the race, you can't do that work on your own. Frank, Frank Briglia, Bob Cuneo, our sled, our, our mechanic, and our sled builders, those guys get just as much credit as any of the rest of us. Did you love track and field? Um, I love the process. I love the process. I probably love soccer the most. I would say I love soccer the most, but I, I also think that I was somebody who just, I love the process of excellence, which shockingly, I've started a nonprofit that helps kids understand the process of excellence um, and harnesses that with athletes. So for me, that's what sport was about for, for me. And it, and it sounds corny I, because I, I don't believe it's just the journey. I don't. I believe winning matters. I believe trying to win matters. I believe showing up to win matters. Um, but I also believe that doing it right matters. And... Um, and I think that's a big part of it. I have a theory 
on this that I've heard over and over again, working with collegiate athletes. I'm fortunate to get to work with all kinds of different sports and sports that I knew nothing about before I started working with them. And what I've found is when I asked that question, like, do you love your sport? The sports that I call pain sports, there's always this hesitation, which you had, you had this brief hesitation. Uh, so what do I call pain sports? Swimming is a pain sport. Cross country track and field yep. is a pain sport. Yep. Wrestling is a pain sport. American football is a pain sport. Bobsled, I would say, is a pain sport. I could go on and on, but these yep. are sports it's, that it's a great point. They're physically grueling, like they take a toll on the body, and they also are emotionally and mentally draining because there's typically like a monotony to these sports. They're just you're doing the same thing over and over again, and you're trying to master it. So it's this physicality with this emotional mental toll that it takes. And I'll never forget, like we were talking about American football and I worked with Maryland football and I would ask yep. those players, do you love it? I would hear that. Then I'd go to American university and ask the wrestlers, Hey, do you all do this? Then I'd go to George Washington university and ask the swimmers. And there was always this pause and it was just a subtle pause. And then <laughs> I'd go to DC United or I'd go talk to people in the NBA and I didn't hear the same pause. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people in those sports that don't necessarily love their sport. There are, but I just found that that pause and then the explanation for why they still did it, whether it was making money to support their family because they love com competition or they love the process. Like there was, there was something that they loved about it, but I never thought that it was the thing that they love. Whereas if you talk to basketball and soccer and hockey and hockey's physical as well, and, and it's grueling in its own right, but there's a creativity that exists within those sports. Um, there's almost a sense of freedom and autonomy that exists in it that I find to be different than those other sports. That's a great observation. I, you know, yes. Yeah. I agree with, I agree with all of that. And, you know, and I, again, as I said, like I think back in like soccer, I, I did love soccer, but I think the, the challenge, yeah, it, it, there's, there's the, but sport is bigger than just the actual thing that you are playing or doing. And I think that's the thing, right? I, I think the pause happens because we process it from a, that actual push the sled, jump in the sled and go down. I think you talk to a bobsled driver. They love that. I was a push athlete. I was a horse. Talk to the jockey versus the horse. So I did drive a little bit. I was terrible at it, so I didn't love it because I sucked at it. But, um, but I think that the the di that's the, that's a bit of a difference in my sport. So I, I I agree, and I guess if I were to think about it, I think that pause comes from it's the greater part of it, right? Because bobsled for me wasn't just the actual pushing of the sled going down the hill at seven in the morning in you know warming up in minus thirty degree weather in there. It was getting out at the end of the day and working out in the Italian Alps or in like the Dolomites and Cortina de Impezzo. And then bobsled also to me was going and getting a coffee in the middle of Cortina or St. Moritz. And then it was getting in the trucks and being able to drive from, you know, uh, like Altenburg, which is a, an hour South of Dresden in East Germany and drive a sled truck with a teammate all the way to La Plante, France, 13 hours away with no map and no GPS because it was the two thousands that's, that's still sport to me. That's still, that's still bobsled. And that's the stuff I loved. And again, that's where you bring it back to the things we do in life afterwards. What did I, what did I create with my sister? I created something that took the process part of sport, 
it actually literally took it's funny i hadn't thought of it this way it took the sport part out of it and just took the things i loved and then created an sel social emotional learning framework and curriculum for schools yeah thanks i'm gonna use that now (laughs) you got it um i won't charge you for for my time noted yeah uh but you mentioned the dark side and and so this dark side of TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, you mentioned yourself, mm-hmm. concussions, you've dealt with depression as well individually. Uh, you mentioned losing two of your your brothers that you've been in the sled with. Um, and so one of the things I'm I'm curious about and and you know correlation and causation, I understand this is complicated stuff. Um, but let's just try to pull on these threads a little bit. So we've got concussions, traumatic brain injury, which could create depression and could create challenges for people. Um, and then there's this other piece that I'm also curious about, which, which is just the Olympics and the psychological toll that an athlete can have without maybe the, the brain injuries um, of just identity and who am I and who am I when the lights are off? And mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been well documented and, and sort of the transition that our Olympians go through post the Olympics. So I know this is complicated stuff, but perhaps I'm, we'll start. I'm yeah. not good. I'm not good at complicated stuff. So yeah, break it down for me. <laughs> well, well, but let's start with like the, the brain injury and the concussion element to your sport and losing, losing brothers. And, and there have been more along the way. Uh, the NHL is actually, somehow not gotten enough attention, but there's this massive issue in the NHL. The NFL is talked about all the time. I'm sure in Canada, maybe it gets more attention as far as enforcers and suicide and depression. Honestly, I don't think it's big enough, but that's a podcast for another day for you and your podcast brothers and, and, and sisters and the community. Um, what's your perspective on, on what you've observed and what you know as far as yourself and also losing, losing people along the way? All right, we're going we're gonna to get heavy now. That's where we're going. So yeah. Just open the door. Okay, I just want to make sure I saw the sign on the door on our way in. Um, we're good. No, we're good with heavy. Because yeah, no, heavy's real. Heavy's it's, real. It's, it's real. Opinion. No, it's real. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I think a lot of things in that realm. Um, yes, like you, I've, I've experienced depression. Mine, mine came later after sport than most. Um, we call this thing, we have this thing called you know, post-Olympic depression. And it's because what goes up must come down. And when you're up as an athlete, whether you're going to the Super Bowl, whether you're in the NFL or the Olympics or whatever it is, you have this huge support system that is around you to help you succeed. And then the day you leave, it all goes away. And that, you know, there is a, there is a ricochet that has to happen. <clears throat> I don't think that, I don't think the mechanism of, of how that, that happens is, is talked about enough. Um, you know, I think that, when we when we when we sprinkle in depression when we sprinkle in concussions and we sprinkle in all these things and it increases and increases and increases the the likeliness i got another guy jarrett speedy peterson and another old good friend teammate <clears throat> and you know, i'll tell you two stories about that that i've you know been unfortunate enough to observe um, in my of people that i know really well and i know their experiences stories one is Pavel jovanovic and the other is speedy so speedy jarrett speedy peterson Pavel Jovanovic uh, was a teammate of mine, brother of mine, a guy who was on the 06 you know, USA one with me that we were supposed to medal. It wasn't about if we were going to medal, it was simply what color. And we walked away with seventh place. Uh, and then he got his job taken in mid 2000s and didn't, 
wasn't on the sled that won an Olympic gold medal in 2010, went on and wound up with a lot of substance abuse problems. Pavle was a guy who I learned my 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 like work ethic in sport from Pavle. Like he was the guy who did everything right. He ate everything right. He he took the right supplements. The supplements actually caused a positive test in 2002, which is how I made the Olympic team. You know in a roundabout way, um, <clears throat> but he did everything right. And we, back then in 2001, 2002, we didn't really know about contaminated supplements as much. Now it's a little bit more and we go through all these labs that test these things, but we didn't really know what was happening back then. There was just all these false positives that were happening. And Pavley went on to have all kinds of substance abuse problems post-sport and, you know, May of 2020, um, his brother found him he hung himself by a chain in the family shop. Go to another side, Jarrett Peterson, who won an Olympic silver medal in 2010, the day before we won our gold medal, uh, or the day before we raced, so two days before we won our gold medal. And Speedy had been again, on all three Olympic teams with me, 02, 06, 2010, and had, uh, you know, he was an amazing personality, big, huge personality, happy guy, had a dark side to him as well. And a year after he won his Olympic medal, he called the police, said, you know, he lives in Park City, called the police and said, this is where you can find my body and went out and shot himself. Two different stories, two different athletes. One of them reached their goal in their dreams. One of them didn't reach their goal in the dreams. Both of them were exposed to, to concussions. Both of them had addictive personalities like most of us do that when you get to that point in athletics, you have to have some kind of addictive personality to wake up every day and do the monotony that you mentioned. So it's, it's made me think, and then, you know, I lost another teammate, Stephen Holcomb, uh, <clears throat> to substance abuse and potentially suicide. We don't know. And then all of a sudden I wind up with depression in 2019 and I'm scared because I've seen where this stuff goes. Like, and, and I know I'm, I've had the same experience as these guys. And it's, it's not that like I won, so I'm not, you know, I won, so I'm different than Pavle who didn't win. I've seen this across the board and there is no... There is no separating factor of who does or who doesn't get this kind of problem. And luckily I was able to, you know, luckily I have a wife who's a psychologist and she was able to be there. Luckily I was able to take it. And I think from my experience, Brian, the, the most positive thing that happened to me was I was able to actually stop and realize and equate this to a physical injury where my decision, does that make sense? Like a, a, for me, I realized my decision-making ability was shot, which told me it was like, you know, it was as if I had torn my hamstring and somebody told me to go to the line and push the bobsled. Well, I, no, I, I can't. And if I had a torn hamstring, what would I do? I'd go to therapy. I'd go to acupuncture. I'd go to massage. I'd go to Cairo. I'd go to the, I'd go to the, you know, the therapy room. I do all these things. But for some reason, when we get depression or when we feel bad or we have anxiety, we think we don't need to do that. We think we need to suck it up. We think, especially as a male and especially as, a, as an athlete. Yeah. Luckily, I think society is now getting us to the point where we realize, you know what? And as soon as I was able to say, you know what? This is an injury. My brain, I realized my brain wasn't processing. I couldn't make decisions. We live in a cognitive world. I have a cognitive-based job now, not a physical job. So as soon as I did that, going to therapy was easier. Going to a counselor was easier realizing how do I feel when I talk about it? Ooh, I feel better. So I started talking about it with my wife and my counselor. And then I started talking about it with some of my close friends and I felt better and I felt better and I felt better. And I started talking about it with other people and I started feeling better and better and better. And I think as soon as you get over the fact that 
from my perspective, if I, tor- you know, I've had a torn hamstring, I've had a strained, you know, adductors, I've had, you know, dislocated shoulders. None of those things make people think I'm a lesser athlete. Oh, I don't know. Do you think I'm a lesser athlete because I had those injuries? <laughs> so why in the world do we think that having some kind of brain injury or brain challenge or issue or chemical imbalance problem or issue makes us a lesser human being? You, you even, have a problem. Even, even more than that, I think back to what you talked about with fear and like, whoa, what a badass. He's waving at fear and he's like developed a relationship with fear that it, it doesn't stifle him from taking actions that he wants. We could apply that same relationship with anxiety, for example. Yeah. Um, and like, what would it be like for our society to say like, yeah, I, I have anxiety and I am t- working on creating a relationship with the anxiety, but I still feel it. Um, or I am depressed and this is how it's impacting me and I have a relationship with it. Um, and, and to me, it's like, how can we create relationships with our emotions and learn how to do that in a way that serves us rather than hinders us? Yeah. You nailed it. And you know, it's like, I have a, I have a back problem or I have a knee problem. And once we can put it in, in terms like that, for me, it got a lot easier. And I think ultimately that's where, um, you know, and I've talked about this um, on another podcast with Dave Epstein on his how-to with Slate, which is, which we talked about the the process of getting over a, getting over a big win and, and doing that. And what we talked about is, in essence, you know, and when I look at it and from my experiences, it is about you're losing something. The day you stop competing, whether you are a, whether you're an entrepreneur who sells their company whether you are an NFL player who retires after they won the Super Bowl or or not, whether you have bobsledder who retires after you won your Olympic Olympic gold, I had this thing with me for twenty years, and it was called my dream. It was there, and whether you achieve your dream or not, it was part of your life for twenty years, and then all of a sudden you change careers, and the dream isn't there with you anymore. That's a loss. Like you lose that thing that is so important to you, that keeps you going, that drives you, that is your special thing. Um, and when it comes to athlete mental health or other or, or mental health, I think recognizing and drawing, we got to do better finding some parallels. We got to do better of just because all of a sudden we have new language. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's great. We can talk about mental health, but the challenge is you can't just introduce new language to the universe and think everybody's going to be down with it. We got to do better about equating these things so that, you know, the guys and uh, you know, I'll use, I'll, I'll stereotype myself which is there's a long time when I looked at, I knew others, a guy named Adam Wood, who was a bobsledder who killed himself when I was still competing. I looked down on him. I'm ashamed of that now, but I looked down. How could you do that? Why would you do that? How did, how could you possibly have it go so bad that you need to do that? And I just, cause I just didn't understand. When even being ashamed of it, like stepping into the shame of it. And mm-hmm. then once again, like saying, all right, where do I feel shame? And, and what is that about? And why do I feel that way? And, and maybe feeling ashamed is actually the right emotion and feeling to feel about something. And so we, we have a long way to go and your wife could probably speak to this better <laughs> yeah. than I can. And me. We have a long way to go when it comes to mental health because we're just starting to open up that bag. And we still, I worry that we're not quite equipping our people with how they can handle it going forward. We still like saying it's okay to not be okay. All right, that's fine. But it's also like 
but we don't want to just not be okay the whole time. Like we need to also empower people to thrive. And at times we do need to be a victim. And at times we do need to just be in survival mode. And in order to thrive, we have to be able to embrace those different parts of the journey. And you nailed it, man. And I think, you know, we look at like, <clears throat> I look at Simone, Simone Manuel, the, the swimmer, um, incredible black role model. And she was very open during U.S. Olympic trials about kind of she that said she had a hard time handling that kind of pressure. And I think we also need to do a better job equipping athletes now that we're talking about mental health more openly and we are recognizing it. We got to like link the two together with performance for for them, not just the athletes, but but so many of the other listeners that are out there. We've got to do a better job to your point, which is that there are certain skills that you use that are great for performance and that same exact skill is can be terrible for day-to-day -day life just like back just like putting 500 pounds on my back i'm not gonna lie i never i barely put 500 pounds on my back once a blue moon 400 pounds on my back on a regular basis multiple times a week uh multiple times a, yeah multiple times a week for 50 100 reps that is awful for my long-term back health and hip health and knee health, by the way, awful for it, but it's a skill and it's a strength that I needed to bobsled. Just like compartmentalization is a skill you have to have. You cannot show up. You cannot show up on game day or race day and let all of the other things that are happening in your life affect this thing because you only get one shot at it. It was race day was one o'clock, February 26th, 2010. If I wasn't ready at one o'clock or mind you 101, my whole career was for, was, was for the performance side of it was not for not, but because I got the experience, but I would have forever been upset with myself that I couldn't focus through. And compartmentalization in that moment is exactly what you need to do. You got it. You can't worry about it. It was dumping snow and we are first off. That's terrible in bobsled. You're like a snowplow when it's dumping snow and you're first off. The, the sled's in front of you, barely clean things off. Um, you know, I had... My parents got scammed and my whole family got scammed out of eight grand uh, because if you Google Messler family scam Olympics, you get all these articles about what happened to my family. Had to put that away, had to put all these other things away and show up at one o'clock and race. And that skill compartmentalization also scuttled every relationship I had going into the games, had scuttled many relationships afterwards. And I, you have to learn how to deal with the balance of those two things and recognize that, you know, you pull out the spoon to eat the soup and you pull out the fork to eat the pasta. And it's pretty hard to do, do it the other way. I wrote a book about performance and I was very clear. This isn't a book about being a great human being. Um, and it's just the truth. Like, you know, we have religious texts. We have a lot of places that people can go to go learn how to be a good human. And I didn't feel right about writing a book about being a great human because I'm still a work in progress myself. When it came to performance and the mindset for performance, and mm -hmm. we can talk about the book some other time, like I felt pretty strong about what I had learned and what I knew. And to your point, like the ability to regulate emotions um, in a profound way on top of a mountain might not be the same ability you need to regulate emotions when you're having a detailed conversation with your wife about something really serious in your relationship. And, and so I, I find yeah. with athletes, they have a ton of skills and they need a lot of work figuring out what skills they need in the real world. And so that transition is difficult. And I just talked to a client about this today who's an executive mm -hmm. from the sports world. 
And we talked about, you know, everyone says, it's not what you do, it's who you are. Like your identity is not what you do, your identity is who you are. And I think that's in part true, but there also needs to be an, an acknowledgement that part of who you are is what you do. Like part of who you are is also what you've done. Part of your journey, Steve, is your experience as an athlete. That doesn't mean that that's who you are. Um, you could be very different than the same guy in the shell with you. Um, but like, it's not a, all of who you are, I but agree. it's a part of who you are. Look, it's a part of who you look, are. Look, if 90% of your waking hours are not who you are, not a piece of who you are, then you're kidding yourself. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, and you know, to go back to your point about, yeah, yeah I mean, I love that, the, the concept, exactly what you said, which is I wrote a book about performance, not about being a good human being. Um, and whether you are or aren't a good human being, there's plenty of people who could definitely write good books about being a good human being. And they don't necessarily, my coach was a great bobsled coach. I would not have put him on my team <laughs> at all. No offense to, um, but I was talking to a woman named Jess Bartley, who's our new director of mental health at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. In my, in my volunteer time, in my ample volunteer time, I sit on the board um, for the USOPC. And Jess, we just brought Jess in because what we did at the USOPC was we separated performance and health in some ways that I think was really smart. Sarah Hirschel and her team were really smart about thinking about those ways. Now, they always, there is a, always a confluence and convergence of those things. But from some perspectives, especially right now, where everybody is right now, it was really good to, to bifurcate those two. But Jess and I were talking about just like that is, which is how do we teach athletes about these incredible tools that they have for performance and then what those things are in life? Because here's the thing, honestly, Brian, like I became the best in the world at something. It's really, really, really difficult to say, hey, all of those things that you did to become the best in the world at something, 50% of that, you gotta like let go. How in the world do you tell somebody that? <laughs> like, and it's, and it's wrong because those, so that's what I always talk about with the college athletes yeah. is like, no, this is part of who you are. You've developed the resilience. You've developed mm -hmm. the emotional control. You've developed these skills that you can then leverage if you wanna be a consultant, a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, whatever it is, that is part of who you are. And, and so you just used a platform, whether it's bobsledding or track and field or a nonprofit to express those skills. And I, it's the thing underneath the thing. Like we often talk about the thing as in what someone does, but underneath that thing is who someone really is. And that drives them to be able to do what they can do. And so when I work with people, I always start with, you know, what are your values? What's your mission? What's your philosophy? What's your vision? We start there. And then from that place, we can figure out what the thing is that they're going to do, which also is very important because you are playing a different game than your parents played. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean it's good or bad or better or worse, yeah. but it is a different game. And one of the things I'm curious for you as a former athlete, and I'm also curious, do you still, let me ask this question first and okay. then I'll come back to that. I'm getting excited and we're about to finish, but, um, are you still competing? Are you running? Are you like marathons? Like, do you still compete? I, I, I work out hard. Um, my old coach, Stu and I did this thing called embrace the suck in February. That was five every single day for the whole month of February. I like these kinds of, I like basically stupid human tricks. Now that's what I like. Um, we did embrace the suck was we had a cohort of people who did this every single day, no days off for the entire month of February. 
five miles, walk it, run it, crawl it, however you want to get there, five miles, 100 reps of 100 deadlift, 100 kilo deadlift, so 220 pound deadlift, and 100 push-ups every day. So I like that kind of stuff. I like challenging myself. I like doing it in groups. You know, I, I work out every day. I'm actually trying to run a 22-minute 5K just because, remember, my job was to run for five seconds and sit for a minute. I was the best in the world at that. So the concept of the concept of running five kilometers or five miles was just like too daunting for me, even just a few months ago, a few months before Embrace the Sucks that happened. But I liked the stupid human trick part of it. And then now I'm running, now I'm training to do a 22-minute 5K. So I, I, I compete, but more for myself now and i'm happy to do that all right so i had to get that out okay, okay. Class, classroom champions you're running this organization you have staff you have remote staff mm -hmm. uh you're based in calgary but you have staff all over yep as an athlete your job was to execute yep. and you even talk about hey track and field i could show up toe the line you know do my thing i understand that it's a team sport in in bobsled but your job was still your job to execute yeah as the ceo I think of a CEO as, Hey, I gotta be strategic. I need to develop other human beings. Mm -hmm. I need to work on the business, but not in the business. There are distinct differences between what it takes to be a manager or a leader than it is to be someone who executes. What's it been like for you running this organization as a leader and, and what skills have you had to develop? Oh man. Um, that's a great, yeah, I, I really, I completely subscribe to the, like, you gotta learn how to work on the business, not in the business. And we're still at that middle stage, right? We're, <clears throat> we're 15 to 20 people where you don't have an organization full of specialists. You still have a lot of generalists at the size we're in. Um, for me, every year is something, I'm handing over something that I used to do, which as a founder is also difficult. So you have this founderitis in, in organizations and the only founders to become successful are the ones who can, who can find whatever it is that they need to get rid of that founderitis you know, sickness. And part of that as an athlete is really, really hard too, because to your point as an athlete, you're the one doing the work and you're not, you're needing to support your team and delegate to your team. But ultimately you are still the one putting your hand on the sled or foot on the ball or, or whatever it is. So for me, the skills that I've had to develop, uh, empathy was absolutely number one. That was early on in my career. I, you know, took a, um, took a, you know, MBTI and, and realized, okay, I got to work on this um, for sure. So empathy is something I had to practice. And I practice that by going to, when I'm at the supermarket, I don't just say, hey, how you doing to the cashier? I actually ask a second and third question. And I do that as practice for myself. Same thing at the gas station. Because I, I want to practice not just going through the motions of caring. You have to eventually actually care. And I think that's the one thing that I really realized in, in sport, you're doing things that because you, you have to do certain things to be successful for both your mental health and, and for those around you, you have, you can't just pretend that you care about your team or make them feel like they're part of the team. You actually have to care about your team and you actually have to have them be a part of your team. So for me, that was a skill that I had to develop. It's still developing. It's still something that is, you know, on, honestly, we're still working on, like there's still a Steve says culture that we're still to this day working on. Um, you know, another big skill that I had to, to re really recognize was I, and it wasn't that I had to lower the bar of expectation for other people, but I cannot expect people to care as much as I do. And if they do, Great. And there we do. We have we have some people at Classroom Champions 
who like our, our folks at our director level at Costume Champions, um, not on our board of directors. Our board of directors is amazing as well. Our guy named Dave Patrick, our board chair, who's CEO of Charles Schwab in the mid-90s, 2000s, is amazing. My sister, Andy Rotherham, some of these Christian Taylor Olympic gold medalists sits on our board. These people do care um, deeply. But from a staff perspective, you know, you, you they have job, they have lives as well. Um, and you have to respect that. So for me, I think respecting that, respecting weekends was something that took a while for me to actually wrap my head around. Because as a bobsledder or as an athlete, there are no weekends. The only day off is a day off you specifically have, and it's part of your training. You know, your, your day off is part of your training environment. It's not just like a day off of work, which is a day of life. Your day off of, of training is actually that. So I think if I had to outline two big things, it was those two or three big things. And I could keep talking to you forever, but we got to get your daughter to make sure <laughs> yeah. that she's, she's going to remain an American. Mm-hmm. I was joking with Steve. I was like, you should just show him a gold medal and then everything should be, that should just be a pass. But um, let's just close on, on, on classroom champions and the work that y'all do. I think what I'm most curious about is what makes the teaching successful? What makes the mentoring successful? A lot of organizations try to mentor. We've had on David Shapiro on here who mm, runs oh, Mentor. Great. If you yeah, know I know. Yeah, we're sort of Classroom Champions is a certified organization by Mentor for, for mentoring. Yeah. We've had on some mentoring geniuses oh, on here. And I think we all hopefully are mentoring somebody in our life and are being mentored by yeah. somebody mm-hmm. in our life. So mentorship teaching, I'd love to know, especially the remote teaching that you do given the universe that we live in now. Talk to us a bit about what's made you all successful from a teaching and mentoring standpoint. No, it's a great point. And, and I'll, I'll also throw in the, your concept of, yeah, like you should be mentoring and you should be mentored. Anybody who is a manager at Classroom Champions at the very least is, you know, I like strongly encourage slash facilitate them to have a mentor in their life. Um, and the great thing about Classroom Champions is people want to help. People believe in the work we do. And <clears throat> the work we do is, is about giving kids the keys to the kingdom when it comes to the process of these people who are doing amazing things. Um, It shouldn't be a black box of how to accomplish a goal. It shouldn't be a black box of how do you, how do you overcome that fear? How do you persevere through things? How do you become a good leader? These are all kind of like existential questions that shouldn't be that. These should be things that are taught in school. Um, Think about, let's, let's use our generation, Brian, where, what do you think of when you think of Pluto? Pluto, it's a planet, right? Right, and we've <laughs> not, you know not a dwarf planet. We're we're, planet. we're red. Yeah, if you're well read now, you realize that Pluto is not in fact a planet anymore. But we learned it in school. It has to be true, you know. Um, I I just read the other day that apparently there are now five oceans. They are now considering the Southern Ocean around the Antarctica to be its own ocean. They have its own. Yeah, believe that. I see your face on the Zoom right now, like. It's mind-blowing, know that. right? Mind-blowing <laughs> because we didn't learn it in school. Why are we not learning? Why are kids not learning? Short-term goal, long-term goal. Who do you tell your goals to and what happens when you fail? Perseverance. Why should kids not be learning these things? Why should perseverance not be a word that is part of the vocabulary that is on the state tests in first grade? Why is that? Feedback. Imagine having an entire classroom of kids who accept feedback like an athlete where I moved to a foreign country to have somebody tell me what I did wrong 20 times a day. And I wanted it. I did something and I would look at him and wait for him to tell me what to do wrong. I did what what he thought I did wrong and how I could fix it. Imagine having a classroom of kids 
who every day they walk in and they're waiting for their teacher to correct them. And, and they are not defensive about it. That's what we're trying to build at Classroom Champions. We're trying to build classroom and school and district and state and national and international wide cultures amongst kids in schools or out of school. We have a part partnerships with boys and girls clubs and other programs, anywhere kids go on a regular basis that we can leverage a curricular concept as we move forward that you know we connect all these schools, the actual nuts and bolts of it, we connect these schools to incredible Olympians, Paralympians, NCAA student athletes, NFL, NHL players, over 200 athletes have, have volunteered to be mentors through, you know, over a year, over a year, we've reached over 5 million kids. Um, and that is something that when I was, when I was in Buffalo in June of 2010, right after I won my gold medal, uh, one of my best friends, a guy named Sam Sellers, best friends growing up, turned me, you know, beer in his hand, turns and goes, cheers. And was like, how's it feel to have written the first line of your obituary at age 31? And like my stomach dropped. I was like, I am not going to be no offense to Mike Ruzioni, but like, I'm not going to be spending the rest of my days going to golf tournaments, reliving. And I, Mike, actually, I don't know if you still do that, Mike. So I'm just picking on you. Um, but I'm not going to be spending the rest of my days going to golf tournaments and giving a talk about something I did when I was 31. Uh, -uh. uh, there's bigger things to be done. And I want to help athletes and, and athletes in the world like today with athlete activism and schools actually have time carved out for this social emotional learning. And, and that's what we're trying to bring to the system at classroom champions. Well, it's an amazing thing. And I think what's cool about it is you serve multiple populations. So you serve the parents of these kids, yep. you serve the kids, yep. you serve the teachers, and then the athletes, like you're giving them a platform to your point at, at 31 for you to be able to go make an impact and influence and get some fulfillment. Um, and I'm curious with college athletics, how it's going to yep. work with the NIL and how they're going to start being able to make money and earn, um, I mean, for those that aren't familiar, they, they're passing this law that college athletes are going to be able to earn money on their name, image, and likeness, which is what NIL stands for. So another conversation for us to have, mm -hmm. but I'm, I, I started my career really serving that population. You know, I worked with pro athletes, but the majority of my clients were high school age athletes and the parents would come up to me and they would say the nicest things to me in the world about the impact I was having on their kids. And to your point, I really didn't believe it was me. I felt like it was my education and that I had these tools and these skills mm -hmm. that they then were taking and making theirs. And I would always have the, my clients teach me what they learned. Um, cause I think once you learn something, you should teach it yep. and then it sticks. Yep. And I would always be blown away by what these, these high school athletes would create. And so I, I love awesome. who you're serving. Cause I think it hits on multiple fronts and it just, it's really, really it, cool it, and inspiring. It, thank you. Thank you. It's been, I mean, <clears throat> my sister and I, we started it cause I used to go into schools, give a talk, leave, never see those kids again. And we wanted to do better and we wanted to do something that was more impactful. And, you know, well, now fast forward 11 years and Lee and I, are just incredibly like honored at the amount of people and athletes that support the amount of the millions of dollars that have donated and sponsored to classroom champions that do things. And now that we live in a world where districts and schools actually have budget for these things, we can actually reach so many more kids now because now we don't have to wait on donors. We can actually work with schools and help them help them bring classroom champions in. And it's been it's been really, it's been incredible. I, I never would have thought Classroom Champions would get to where it is. I never would have thought I would 
have the honor of sitting on the board of directors of our Olympic and Paralympic committee. I never would have thought that I would have been able to go and win a gold medal in anything. <laughs> like it was a dream just, but just because a dream doesn't mean that you're going to actually go and do it. And honestly, like I'm grateful to be invited on here and, and talk about my experiences. And, you know, I know at times I, I state things matter of factly, but really everybody out there, this is just my experiences and, and the things I've seen. And, you know, you guys are going to carve your own paths and, and create your own opinions and, and, you know, and fill your own directions in a way that like Brian and I are going to be stoked to watch happen too. So thanks for having me on, man. This is great. Thanks, Steve. And where can people find you? I know you're, you're on Twitter and social media. And then also if they want to learn more about classroom champions, where can they do that? Yeah, they can uh, find me on the Twitter at Steve Messler. Um, they can stevemessler.org is where you can find my blog on there where I, I write every two weeks. Um, please jump on and, and subscribe to the newsletter. I've been rambling now for just a few months. I started it. It's been a blast to do. Uh, and then classroomchampions.org is where if you are a parent who would like your, for your school to do this, send that website to your school. If you're you know, a, a donor or a, spot, a company who wants to help bring American athletes into schools virtually and provide, you know, something that we never had when we were kids into schools that are actually helping kids do better with grades. We see improvements in grades, attendance, behavior, and also social emotional development. So um, that's where you can find us. Well, Steve, I think we covered the darkness, we covered the lightness, <laughs> and we covered the future and, and sort of where you're going and excited to get to know you better. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson there. And then you can listen to all these conversations, strongskills.co slash podcast. Steve, great to get to know you. Good luck with dealing with the U.S. government as you go <laughs> over there and get everything situated. If you have any issues, just give us a call. We're in Washington, D.C. We'll know, do. We can, we can make some we'll phone do. calls. I'm sure we I love you. Yeah, happy with the U.S. government, and, and we'll be very happy with them this afternoon. We're just going to keep it at that. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What did I create with my sister? I created something that took the process part of sport. It actually literally took, it's funny, I hadn't thought of it this way. It took the sport part out of it and just took the things I loved and then created an SEL, social emotional learning framework and curriculum for schools. 